2: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 35th episode of my monthly feature, Our
1: Voices, an inside look into a life journey that's likely quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. My amazing guest today curates over three dozen leadership seminars each year, reaching thousands of leaders. He works every day in pursuit of his goal for everyone to truly belong and has equitable opportunities to thrive. Among other ways he's being part of the solution, he holds two summits each year that focus on shifting the national conversation on racial equity and inclusion from compliance to belonging. He also has a passion for leveraging technology for the highest impact possible, being deemed a champion of change for computer science by the Obama administration in 2016 and advises two technology companies on creating cybersecurity training academies and extending electric car charging stations in underserved communities. I am excited to introduce a brilliant advocate for all. Meet the Managing Principal of Expectant Advisory and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute Socrates Program, Cordell Carter. Cordell,
3: welcome to Our Voices. Thank you so much, Molly. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It is a thrill for uh, me to have a chance to chat with you, and I will look forward to actually meeting in person, hopefully sooner than later. Um, You know, years ago, I was a very regular attendee to the Socrates Program's out NASPIN. Just a big shout out to Gary and Laura Lauder for their just tireless commitment and leadership to create that program, which really was a, a game changer for me. Uh, I look very forward to your thoughts on that. But before we go there, Cordell, I would love listeners to get to know you uh, and have an inside look into your journey in life and how you got to where you are today.
3: Well, I uh, I should state at the beginning that I was born into a family of uh, religious leaders in Southern Virginia. And so this idea of, of service to others as a part of your daily curriculum, has just it's just a part of my makeup. Um, it has expressed itself very differently <laughs> in my adult life. I did not follow the path of my parents and so many, but I've looked to serve uh, the broader sense of mankind rather than just a religious order. Uh, Although I have great respect for folks that that serve religious orders. And one of my favorite things to do when I travel around the world is is to see churches and places of worship. It just feels different inside those places. Um, And so I I, I started my career um, with the IBM Corporation. Fresh out of graduate school, I went to Carnegie Mellon. um, And uh, I had a very interesting four years um, before going to law school at Notre Dame, um, where public service is part of the ethos. Being a, a Catholic a law school that loves and reveres judges and prosecutors—I mean, we—they we, were like rock stars to us. Uh, you came from a law firm, people kind of said, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> those guys were financing our entire institution um, at the law school. I, I spent a year in Germany doing climate change law um, as a Bosch Stiftung fellow um, with the Creditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, a big bank in, in Frankfurt. Um, it was an amazing year. Um, we had a, a newborn at the time, so which is fascinating watching her grow up um, in a different country and then moved back to the states and Seattle. I was doing labor um, negotiations for Seattle Public Schools as a Broad Foundation fellow. Um, did that for three years and, and then I went to DC to lobby on education for a couple of years, the Gates Foundation for a year. And then an education startup in Chattanooga called Tech Town. Uh, that's where the aforementioned Champion of Change Award came in as we were building um, STEM education for underserved, um, an underserved urban school district, which is Chattanooga Public Schools. Very interesting um, paradigm there with the, the uh, private schools on opposing mountains, signal and lookout. They literally look down on the valley that is Chattanooga. And the, the schools are just so under-resourced. It was shocking uh, to me to see that in America. Um, then after, uh, two years there won an Eisenhower fellowship to go to China in the fall of 16, I spent six weeks in China watching the American presidential election between uh, Clinton and Trump, uh, from Shanghai. That was quite the out of body experience and, and transformational in so many ways, because you really got to just step back, uh, from your own narrative for a second and, um, so many amazing stories came out of that six weeks. We probably don't have we that would take four podcasts to tell to unfold all of that, but came back pretty inspired and fired up to to shift a conversation on American civics, this idea that uh, we are forgetting this amazing thing that we have called the United States of America, and we're so focused on the negative. What about all the positive things of the last two hundred and forty seven years? And so by chance, I run into a colleague at Starbucks in DC. And the rest was history. Um, Went upstairs to the Aspen Institute and and uh, they made me an offer on the spot. And I've been there for the last six plus years.
1: Well, okay, so we're going to dive into the adult part, but I'm going to take you back. Born into a family of religious uh, folks, just share with us a bit about what it was like as a kid. Um, You know, your environment, siblings.
3: Yeah, so I'm the middle and only son, middle child of uh, parents. You know, we're very working class, good, hard, solid people, just worked, and and they they loved the Lord. And uh, we were in church a lot. Uh, That was my main community. That was uh, my main friend group. Um, We literally did homework in the back pews. Um, And I got to see a lot of interesting things that are still with me today. One of my favorite things were the summer vacation Bible schools where we would spend basically a week together after school ended. Um, something happened in the early 80s. Um, the Christian Coalition kind of took over and it really sprouted up from Southern Virginia. So we started getting these uh, extra weeks of vacation Bible school and these uh, these churches that we didn't know. Um, and a lot of white people we had never seen coming and, and telling us to pray for the Supreme Court and all that. And we thought they were celestial beings. We were just little kids. We were seven, eight years old. All we knew is there was ice cream, PBJs, and pizza. Pizza was a rare thing in the early 80s. I don't know if you remember this, but <laughs> you just didn't have pizza all the time. And they were bringing pizza every day. So frankly, I would have appreciate anything they, they wanted me to. What I didn't know is that we were right in the middle of the Joshua generation, um, this 40 plus year project um, to combat and overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, You know, it started in places just like Virginia. And so uh, that's just an interesting fact. The other thing I really enjoyed were the tent revivals. And it's just, to me, it was like at a human zoo because you would see people that you would never saw throughout the year. Um, We thought they were aliens. They were so big and strong and their instruments were different. Their songs were different. There's a spirit about them. You knew they were there before you saw them approach. Um, First time I ever saw a horse and buggy. Still, and these are paved roads. Granted, these are segregated areas of Virginia, but these are civilized segregated areas. People had cars, but these folks were coming up and parking their horse down the road and walking up and with their overalls, but they brought joy and peace and just celebration in their hearts. And I always enjoyed that experience. And fast forward almost, almost 40 years, I'm, I'm building a, you know, a, a whole movement around the tent revival, not in a religious sense, very secular sense, but it is a revival of the heart, mind, body, and soul um, via the festival of diaspora, which kicks off. The second annual one is in um, Cartagena uh, de Indias, Colombia on March the 2nd. And for the second year in a row, we were in Puerto Rico last year, you know, 150 plus people from all over the Americas are gathering um, to enjoy each other's company, to celebrate our shared history. And, Uh, the other AI, which is ancestral intelligence, um, and, you know, connect across our borders, and collaborate for the communities that they hold dear to their hearts. And so I'm I'm very, very excited to be part of this movement and to to see this, this old fashioned tent revival come back. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait to lean into that.
1: So let me just ask where in your growing up black, white, mostly black, I just I'm just wondering, you know, when did you realize if there if you realize anything about
3: race? Yeah. Well, um, certainly we were, um, almost 100% black. I had a very different experience than most of my peers. I was gifted and talented. I tested in third grade. And so I started getting pulled out every Thursday for the next several years until up until middle school and going to a school, not too far from my own. I went to Shea Terrace elementary in Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, but it was sent me to Zachary Taylor elementary on the other side of town, a part of the city. I was like, where exactly are we? These houses look very different than my neighborhood. <laughs> uh, but I was I was the only black kid there, and I'll never forget the the, the GNT teacher's name. Her name was Miss Laguda. I should look up the obituaries. I know she has to be dead. She's so mean. Um, and she had she had teeth like a shark, just multiple rows of teeth. I just thought she was also an alien. That's a consistent theme in my life, thinking that people are aliens. Um, but it took forever to earn her respect. Um, she she didn't know if I belonged. She would let me know that she thought I was skating by. I wasn't doing the work, whatever that meant. But I just found it baffling that every Thursday, I would have these amazing intellectual experiences. We would go to museums. We would go um, to talk to scientists. They would come to us. Um, you know, you're in Southern Virginia, so you have access to Langley, you have access to aeronautics. It was really, really cool. And then they would get me back to my regular school just in time for the afternoon buses to take you away. So I'm here floating, telling about all my amazing things I did over at the white school. And, you know, it it was problematic on that bus ride home. You think you're better than us. And me, you know, being a kid, it was like, well, I guess empirically that has to be true because you're not going to shave. <laughs> so that's where the fist would, would go. And I remember I was forcibly bust. So even though we didn't live in a housing projects, we lived close enough to the housing projects that I wrote to school with them. So these kids, even though we were at the same school, we had very different experiences. My father was in my house 100% of the time. He worked like a banshee, but I, I knew who my father was. I was very rare uh, and my neighborhood uh, for folks to to have a dad in the house. And I had a father and a dad. There was a difference. And so, um, and then we were very, I mean, we were super disciplined about religious service. We were in church six days out of seven. Um, if it was a service, we were cleaning. And so even though I'm there, I'm not because I'm having a very different daily experience. And so this idea of fitting in and, and finding your place has been a consistent issue in my childhood, as an adult, I got much better at it because you realize, um, you know, all, all skin folks aren't kin folks. You got to find the people that are your people regardless. And that is an intellectual, mental, spiritual thing, not an exterior thing. Um, and once you get that lesson, you're like, okay, now I get it. And you build community wherever you are. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it, it's been a, uh, I, I think I'm uniquely qualified to talk about belonging. Because we moved a lot as well. I forgot to mention that because we were military in addition to all these other things we were. And so you're moving massive communities from when I was 14, we moved from Portsmouth, Virginia, where in my uh, performing arts high school, there was maybe six kids that were not black. Uh, They were either Asian or Latino or or white. Six out of a thousand to uh, moving to University Place, Washington where there were 10 black kids in the entire school district. By third period of, of freshman year, everyone knew my name and where I was from. Um, it was shocking. I'll never forget, I asked my mom if we can consider homeschooling. And after she stopped laughing, she was like, if you don't get your butt back to school tomorrow, we're gonna have a problem. Um, but you you persevered, you learned to deal with it. And and I'm better for having had those experiences.
1: Okay, wait, 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 this is, this is priceless. So first, before you move, before you move, so you're you're getting pulled and bust. And so, did you ask your parents why am I pulled? Why am I getting bust? I mean, it was just like I'm serious. What was the conversation?
3: Um, uh, the conversation. It wasn't really a conversation. Um, <laughs> it was a choice we were given because of where we live. We can either go to neighborhood school, or if I wanted to access to gifted and talented, I had to go to the school across town. Now, my sister and I were both given. My younger sister and I were both gifted and talented. She was having a lot of problems adjusting, meaning um, she was a little uh, more uh, physically aggressive than I was, and that would cause issues. And I would see people and her, like I would see one in the transaction, someone touching my sister, and I would lose it. This normal, nice kid, like jumping on people. And they're like, what's going on? And so they separated us because I couldn't get out of big brother mode. And they separated us. And my sister went to the local, she could walk to school. And I was on a bus for school. It was like that for the rest of our lives, by the way. Um, she always went to neighborhood school and I always went across town. Um, and so um, you become acutely aware of differences when you don't have a choice of which school you go to. Like I had a choice. Those kids on a bus with me did not. They were told where they go. And this is, you know, forcible busing. Um, and so it was a just really interesting um, juxtapositions you always found yourself in. Um, I tried to identify with the kids from the housing projects. They were a lot rougher than I. They were much more mature than I. They had seen just a lot more than I have. And so um, it was uh, it was often a a challenging fit. Um, And at some point, you learn I I better hang out with the kids from the houses. (laughs) That's how we say the houses of the projects. I better hang out with the kids from the houses. They're more my speed. Um, and I'll get in a lot less trouble. I started seeing some really troubling things in 88, 89. This is when crack was hitting, um, um, urban centers really hard. And a few of my cousins, my same age, started getting arrested. I mean, it was, it was a real mess. There was a lot of concern on my parents' part. And so when this job opportunity to, to shift from the Atlantic fleet to the Pacific fleet, uh, popped up, you know, unbeknownst to me, I know now, but my parents are like, let's get this boy out of here. Um, he's doing well. There's no re- reason to arrest that. And then my dad said something to me that's, this follow- stayed with me as well. He said, um, I don't want you to say that you lived only in one place your whole life. Like I have, don't you want to see different things? And so when I think back to my adventurous spirit, um, it started right there in that conversation with the 14 year old me. Um, <laughs> and my dad at the time must've been in his, uh, he was in his late thirties, when he made this massive shift to, to leave all that he had ever known uh, and take his family across the country. And we were absolutely convinced that the Klan was waiting for us and all of that. Um, That wasn't the case at all. The people in Washington state were quite lovely and welcoming of us uh, with, with few exceptions, mostly in our neighborhood, they weren't too happy that a black family was there. But other than that, I mean, it was, it was fine. I had an amazing time. I really sprouted my wings as a, a young person and, um, I think that that spirit of just like going into situations and saying, I I can recreate myself here, um, have, have stayed with me, um, all these years later.
1: It's so remarkable. Talk a bit about your parents and their ethos, where'd they get it? I'm just so blown away by them, you know, just really kind of leading themselves, leading you, creating opportunity. Uh, You know, that's, that's a, a huge gift.
3: Yeah, you know, they're both from large families. They, they have the exact same familial pattern. Um, the During World War II, when they started recruiting black soldiers, the recruiters went to the, the sharecropping fields where most black men were. And I said, listen, guys, um, Uncle Sam's needs some men. If you're at least 17 um, and you're willing to sign up and go fight and you pass basic training, you'll get $10 a month. If you're married, you'll get, you know, $15 a month. If you're married with a child, you get $20 a month. So all those 15- and 14-year-old boys were all of a sudden 17. All those 13-year-old women became their wives, and they were also 17. And all of our first aunts and uncles are exactly eight years older than you know their siblings. Um, on both sides of the family, it's exactly how it happened. That's how uh, our families basically moved from uh, these tenant farmers to, at the time, public housing. We came housing projects later, but those public housing was a step up from tenant farmers. Um, And the shanties that they had with their their large families and these young men, uh, my grandfathers, both of them were in World War Two. They're fighting in Europe. Um, Both of them end up doing um, cleanup duty, um, uh, securing battlefields, uh, retrieving the dead, that type of stuff. And um, both had a very, very unwelcome return to Norfolk um, as their their merit badges are being stripped off of their chests. And they're being told um, to remember who you are and that this is America to Saint Europe. And we better not catch you, you know, being uppity. My maternal grandfather took it very poorly and just became this violent alcoholic, violent. As I look at my baby photos of I me, mean, one and two years old, I see my my younger uncles and all of them. And I I for years I couldn't understand why that was the case. And they finally told me, they said, Well, granddad would come home drunk and start beating on grandma, and his young sons would jump on him. And he's like, I'm not gonna let you fight me in my house. You have to get out of here. And they would go stay with my, my, sis, my mom, their sister. And um, that's why I would see, and they both went to the military very young. As soon as they got 17 out of high school, they were out. They just left. Um, and then on my dad's side, uh, my, my, my paternal grandfather just buried himself in work. Um, he wasn't particularly religious, but he would go to church to appease my grandmother. But he just worked three jobs until he came down with Alzheimer's. Literally, it was almost like overnight. uh, All of a sudden, he had Alzheimer's. And now we were very concerned about all the firearms. He loved to collect firearms. He fashioned himself as a cowboy, little guy, and these big boots all the time. He loved carrying guns. Uh, Thank God he wasn't an alcoholic. That would have been very tragic. Uh, And so my parents, both of them, born in 53, were the first in their families to be born in hospitals. Uh, Prior to that, their older brothers and sisters were all born in homes uh, by, um, uh, what do you call it, Uh, midwives. Uh, But uh, a Blacks-only hospital had been open at that time uh, by like 52 in Virginia, so they were born in hospitals. They were both in first grade together. Kindergarten didn't exist in 1958. And so they went to kindergarten together, I'm sorry, first grade together, and didn't see each other again until 1969 when they were 15. They met, they were on blind dates, respective blind dates at a Temptations and Supremes concert at the Hampton Coliseum. And they ditched their dates, and they've been together ever since. They got married um, right before dad was thought he was going to be drafted for Vietnam um, in 1971, and ultimately did not go to Vietnam. And they just started their lives together and and had three kids before the age of 23. Uh, Dad caught religion fairly early um, and really found a father. And his pastor at that time, um, Bishop Ted Thomas, out of uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, uh, who wasn't much older than my dad, but was a fatherly figure to him. I mean, for fifty years. And uh, and my mother was a, a later convert, but uh, became as strident in in the faith as dad. And so they just pushed us hard. They said, "Listen, we we have to work very hard because we didn't have a chance to do education like you." but I I'm not going to allow you all not to get college degrees. It was a requirement. It was an expectation. And they said, yeah, we're in church all the time, but you got plenty of time to do your homework, do that homework, and then come up here and sing a song. That's exactly what it was saying. Do that homework and come here and sing a song. And so you knew that, you know, um, everything, um, has balance to it. You know, you work, you play, um, you, you, you serve, you get served. And, um, and so that was fairly normal to us. That's the thing. I mean, I, I think about it now, especially the way my 16-year-old's grown up. Um, and I just, I shudder to think um, how she would do in that situation if she was just thrown in now. Uh, it'd be very challenging for her, um, mostly because of the homogeneity of our, the, our living environments. Everyone around you was all black except for one day a week. Um, that's, she goes to international school. She speaks two languages. Her mom is French. She does not look like her dad. Um, you know, she summers in France, like her world is just very different. I can't expect her to have the same grit and hustle that I have. It it looks different to her because she is different. Her environment is different. Um, and I think that's some of the tension that parents often have with kids. You expect them to behave just as you would. Well, you worked hard, so they didn't have the same conditions that you had. And so you have to expect different things from them. They're going to grit looks different to them and they'll figure out their way in their own little way. So I, I think um, just a desire to to do well, to, to really um, take advantage of the bounty that is America. I really believe this is an amazing place to be, um, you know, we're two generations removed from a sharecropper's field where they were getting $2 a week and that boost at $10 a month was huge. It was a game changer um, for both of both sides of my family. And um, I think we've been looking for game changers and boosts ever since.
1: That is spectacular. I, I am blown away. So you are like, I'm off to school. This German, I get I so you picked up languages. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about overseas. Here you are. I mean, clearly you're adaptable, adaptive.
3: Yeah, I um I did pick up German. It, it came surprisingly easy, or I should say, fast, not easy. I was um I wouldn't say I was ever good in languages. I studied Arabic in college. I did um, Spanish in in high school. It just hasn't it hasn't been a, a focus of my life until we were in Germany. I have this six month old, my wife who who does have uh, the gift for languages, so she can function well, but she's kind of busy. I have to take care of things. So you, you have to I call it survival German, the brain does something to like when you know you have to survive. And there's an accessible tool that you can get to that will help you survive. In this case, it was language, the brain figures it out. And um, shocked to myself and others, at the uh, I was what 32 at the time, I picked up German well enough to, to function in Berlin and Frankfurt. And uh, I was just back for the first time, I want to say last May, and uh, the words came back to me. It was just baffling, right? Like, what? Like you never really forget anything. It's in there. Like ragu, the old, I don't know if you remember that old commercial, the ragu uh, sauce commercial. It's in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's in there. Um, and so that, you know, begs the question, what else is in there? Um, and I've uh, been trying to To pull out all these other things, all these other lessons, because I think it all matters. And, and, And at some point in your life, things converge, that the difference between what you've been trained to do, what you're gifted to do, what your experiences have molded you to do, they converge. And I'm walking into that convergence now. And so, yes, I have a lot on my plate, but it doesn't feel like work because things have converged. And so it just makes sense.
1: So your wife, before we get back to the work, because I just want to ask, how did you meet your wife? Uh, Talk about your, you know, yeah, we, kids early on, you know, this is.
3: Yeah, we we met at, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I crashed the international student orientation. Um, I had just gotten back from my first time abroad. This was 1998. Backpack backpacked um, from France on down to Morocco, then back up across to Spain and um and uh, I think I stopped in Florence when I ran out of money. And I just started sleeping on trains, like the Eurorail pass. I would just take the longest train every night and just slept on that until I broke down and called my parents and asked for a return flight. And um, had an amazing time. I was feeling very international. And I, I came to school early because I was super bored at my, my house with my parents in Virginia. So I said, let me just get to Pittsburgh. Now I'll figure it out. And um, I heard they were having international student orientation. So I went and uh met her there and it turns out she's in my program and we started dating not too long after i've been together ever since um we've had we had our daughter third year law school so i think we had been married for about four or five years at that time and uh um, yeah she's she's the only one our 16 year old
1: uh spectacular can i have uh, thoughts about uh mixed race marriage and any has any struggle at all about that for you folks?
3: You know, I had this epiphanal moment. I was in um we 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 waited two years to do our honeymoon. We basically um saved and um wanted to take six months off the day to to do it. It was pretty fantastic. We were in um Dubrovnik. and um I'm you know, uh, one stands out in in Dubrovnik. And, uh, especially when you look like she and I, and, uh, we went to a restaurant and and all the servers were kind of gathered around the table, talking to us. There was, we were the only people there and they were like, well, how do you do it? And I said, how do you do what? And they were like, well, you're so different. I said, yeah, well, you know, she's, she's French and I'm American. They were like, no, you look different. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are talking about race. And I was like, here I am from Portsmouth, Virginia. I have seen Klan rallies with my own eyes, and I had gone at that point three or four years without being consciously aware of of race. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a, just one of those moments. I remembered this is this is how you know it's a social construct. If no one else said anything, it wouldn't have been a thing, right? right. Um, and so, number one, I there are a lot of uh, of biracial multicultural couples, and so I, I don't feel strange in that that respect um, where I've noticed um, some, I guess, interesting things is how the products of those unions define themselves and identity. Um, is, you know, is it more French? Is it, is it more American? Is it Are you Franco-American? I think that's the term my daughter uses. Because mm. uh, you look one way, right? People like either you're Latino or you're black, but what does that mean? Because the inputs do matter. Um, you know, the language she speaks 80% of the time is French. Uh, if you go to France, there are a lot of people who look just like her. And so if she's in France, I, I suspect identity means something different versus when she's in the U.S. Um, you, you put me in any place in, in Latin America, there's a lot of people who look just like me. They'll assume that I speak Spanish. You put her in Greece, even though she's not Greek, um, they think she's Greek because of her skin tone. So, I mean, like, what what is identity really? Uh, these are all constructs. And so um, where I struggle, of course, is I know it's a construct, but it's also a lived reality. That, that construct has taken on real meaning. Um, it could really impact your life chances. I'm I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I should say right place at the wrong time. And that could be my life. I'll tell you a quick story happening in Chattanooga <clears throat> that caused such an epiphany for me in China Like later that year. I bought a house. I had a startup. that was very intense, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks. I bought a house and I decided to plant flowers right in the middle of the day because I was just stressed out and it was nothing going on in this house, right? So I decided to plant some flowers and I had headphones on. I was blasting some uh, Coltrane and it's like, it was giant steps. So it was like really driving, you know, it was really going right. And I look up, I just felt something wasn't right. And I see my neighbor running towards me, waving her arms. And so I took a headphone off and she's like, no, I'm like, huh? And I turn around and there's a police officer running towards me with his hand on his holster. So I looked at her name was Susan. I said, Susan, stop. And I turned to the officer and said, why are you in front of my house with your hand on your gun? He's like, this is your house. I'm like, is there a reason it wouldn't be? he's like, well, we got a call. I said, in broad daylight, someone planting flowers and you come with your hand. He's like, no, it's not like that. I'm like, really? Well, tell me what it's like, you know? Um, I said, would you like proof you want to pay my, I mean, I really was giving him a hard time because I realized he, he realized what was going on. Some neighbor had called, not used to seeing a black man in this neighborhood. Um, and uh, they thought I was there causing problems with those flowers. Um, and so that situation could have literally costed me my life just because of how I look now you flash forward a year and I'm in Shanghai. I'm sorry. I'm in, in Beijing. It's I'm in a Hutong and it's late. It's like nine 30. I'm looking for this very famous restaurant and I'm saying, ni hao, ni hao ma, you know, to the older folks. And every person says, Hey, Hey, NBA photo. And I thought it was really funny. Right. Cause I am not a tall person. I'm five seven and that's with heels. Okay. I'm five seven. Um, I'm taller than them, but that's not saying much. I was like, obviously, you've never seen an NBA player, but by the fifth time that happened at night with senior citizens approaching me for photos and we're smiling, I realized that my presence wasn't or didn't create a dangerous situation for myself and others. And like, how can a Judeo-Christian culture create a circumstance which my very presence could end my life? And a Confucius culture says, ah, even if he's not being good, he's on his way to goodness. I'm just going to treat him as a a object of curiosity and Marvel. And it just, it just really started to mess with me. And I began to think, remember, this is September, 2016. Mm. The black lives matter was really big at that time. And the value of young men's lives were being questioned on television by belligerent politicians at that time. And I just began to really emote. And I said, Oh my God, Um, I'm, I was 40 years old at the time. And I'm having this epiphanal moment when you realize that the American narrative is just that a narrative, not the narrative. But I have all these young men growing up in America thinking this is the only way to be, the only way to live. Like I have to get them out of there for six months at a time so they can experience what I just did, being not an object of worry and concern, but an object of curiosity and wonder. And how affirming that was. And so it just, it really, sh- I mean, it's bothering me right now, as I, as I recall the story, um, because I realize I haven't picked that project up once my visa got denied in 2017. I haven't picked mm-hmm. that project back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, I would love to, at some point, when relations relax, um, that we can get more young men of color out of a society, at least for a breather, for a semester, uh, a society that unfortunately has been created um, on a caste system. And 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 they are not at the top of this cast. They are certainly at the bottom, and it's, it's, it could be a potentially dangerous situation for them. And I'm just I'm concerned about the psychological harm that is causing them that they're just living with and thinking that is normal. It's not normal. But the the irony of all this is, is still the best place in the world to be, in my opinion. It's Still the place where ultimately you can have any possibility you can imagine. It's possible in the United States of America. You just have to deal with the bullshit too, and sometimes the bullshit is very dangerous.
1: Yeah. Yes. 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 Cordell, what has you know? As you came through your career, has you just seemed so bold? You seem to have figured it all out. What was hard? Where did you oh,
3: really struggle? <laughs> I mean, you had. Uh, <laughs> I I my thirties were awful. Um, uh, my thirties, I I was Mister Can't Do Right. Um, just failing. I went through, for one period, of a six-year period, four jobs. Um, I just could not get my my things together at all. Uh, I was super depressed. Um, man, um, it feels like ages ago. It wasn't that long ago at all. Um, what did it for me was those two years in Chattanooga. Because I found my voice. I stopped following um, the leaked script. I I remembered that. The narrative I was seeking to project was just that it was a choice, right? Um, And focusing on this external narrative only without paying attention to the internal narrative was not sustainable for me. Moreover, I wasn't going to get to where I wanted to go. Um, I worked really, really hard to get to uh, the Gates Foundation, And for that all to come apart, just because people thought I was too young to have the senior role and they just determined like, well, I'm just gonna make his life very challenging. I'm just gonna bother. I mean, it was, I'm like, I'm watching this. I'm like, don't you all see this happening? It's like, you go to someone's house and see roaches on a wall. Like, don't you see that? Like, don't you wanna get a spray or something? Maybe we should go out, you know? Um, It it just, it was baffling to me. Um, But once you realize that really folks don't give a care about you, they want what they want. And it's not personal either. You just happen to be in the way. What did what did Truman Capote say? It was it was your turn. I said, "Why me? It was your turn." And once I realized it was just my turn, that was relieving in in many ways. Um, and so I, I I got a lot of lessons from that. I, I learned uh, number one, I'm just an imperfect person. I'm trying my best. Number two, advocate for yourself. At the end of the day, um, you have to be accountable to you. Number three. As long as you're clear on what the objective is, a lot of things will make sense because the universe is mental. And so you have to be really clear about where you're going and why, and then hope that that convergence catches up with you. And like I said, I'm in a moment of convergence. I actually feel more autonomy and agency right now than I've ever felt in my career, um, where I'm calling my shots, where I'm speaking things into existence. I had to go through what I went through, those awful things, the depression, um, the, the feelings of worthlessness, um, just of a hopelessness of having to go away from my family, be alone for, you know, most of my time and, and dealing with the effect of, of that. Um, I had to do it to have this moment. And so, of course, when you're going through it, you don't get it. It feels awful. It feels hopeless. You feel worthless um, and sometimes reckless. But um, this too shall pass. And for this brief moment that we're on earth, um, these lessons, if you if you adhere to what they're telling you, can be incredibly value added to your life. And so now I'm I'm thankful for those experiences. I have no bitterness in my heart. Um, the the people um, that I uh, that were part of these experiences, I see every now and again, and it's always with love. They're shocked at it, uh, and I'm reminded that that verse from Romans it says uh, when you are kind to your enemy, it's like pouring hot coals in their head because they can't understand your behavior. Um, And so, but once I, like, once I can get past that and just move on with my life, because they said what the best revenge is living well, I am living well. I'm living abundantly. I'm having amazing experience. Um, Everyone associated with me is having amazing experiences. And so I'm thankful for the bad times because that is the foundation in which we rest the good times.
1: Oh my gosh, your courage. I love, love, love how you're able to articulate it for listeners. You know, it's brutal. I don't wish struggle on people, but your ability to learn from it, be better for it. And, you know, I can just feel it. It's it's this tailwinds, right, Cordell? I mean, it's just spread your wings and fly. I mean, it's just so yeah. clear to me. I love it. So share with us, you know, you're doing so, there's so many places we can go, but share with us your work, what you're doing, um, some of the challenges, you know, and I think you're the clearly being the change you
3: want to see in the world,
1: you know, so I'm, I'm just blown away.
3: Yeah, well, um, I see my life in four parts. Um, there is uh, the what I call that my major platform, which is the Aspen Institute. Um, we are known for assembling uh, convening uh, leaders to, to deal with challenging stuff. Um, I would love to see us um, extend that model to this bigger idea of belonging. And um, I'm committed via Socrates and the Project on Belonging, which is the other program I'm ramping up at Aspen, to, to position the Institute to, to be the leader in that conversation and, and to model, frankly, what it takes to build a, a corporate culture where everyone feels like they belong and see opportunities to thrive. Um, so that, that's number one. That's the vast majority of my time. Uh, I also work with a few uh, companies uh, directly, mostly boards of directors, executive teams. Um, um, I have content that i I built around uh, founding documents and and finding paths for belonging, justifying like this is uh, if 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 the leader's job in organization is to express um, the intended outcome and then uh, inspire the the workers, the folks that uh, he or she leads to actually execute upon that outcome. Um, I think we can model that in some very interesting ways. And so I work with those leaders on, on what that, that tone looks like, like, this is what it feels like. This was, this is what our founding fathers did. Um, I have a much more expansive notion of founding fathers and founding mothers, uh, because I say that there are four foundings in the U S um, the first being 1619 to the Declaration of Independence, Declaration of Independence to the civil war being the second one, civil war to civil rights uh, legislation in the sixties being the third. And here we are um, 70, 80 years later um, in this fourth founding. So we're the beginning of uh, the next phase of the USA. And so this is exciting, terrifying time all at the same time. Um, And so I'm not, you shouldn't be surprised that there's so much dissension. Shouldn't be surprised. There's a lot of noise and people saying, let's throw it all away. Um, They feel like they're going to lose something. And so if you can't create a safe environment for people to express their sense of loss and mourn that with them, even if you don't think it's righteous, um, then I think you're failing. You're failing as a leader, and you're failing as an organization where you say people belong. And so that's what that work is about. And then you know, it's, here's these, these these platforms. I say I have the ability to, to help others um, elevate their profile. And so the Festival of Diaspora to me is is about as religious as I can get. It is the way that I. Um, um, use my gifts, my network, uh, my reach uh, to pull others up. Um, uh, and it is proven to be a very effective model. It's uh, a lot of work. Um, you know, I don't think I've had a free weekend in three years, But again, I'm at convergence, and I don't even I can't even notice, All right? I don't notice it. I'm just moving. I'm making things happen. I'm smiling. And I'm eating good food. I can't complain, right? Um, and then, lastly, um, the last quarter of my existence is is really focused on um, being a really good advisor um, on a boards of a couple of uh, organizations. One being Concordia, which is a convener. Um, uh, the Other being Skillstorm, um, and a new uh, Black Bank that's uh, forming right now called Redemption's Holding Company out of Salt Lake City. And so I'm I'm, I'm just I'm very excited. These, these, are all about changing the game for, for others, for people that are underserved, I should say, underestimated. Um, and, um, and so again, it, it, it converges very well with my values, this idea of expanding opportunity for others. And so I stay busy, but I also stay present and, um, I, I, I do need to take more breaks. There's no doubt self-care is important. But I love getting uh, going to massage interview, <laughs> you know, once a week, I have a stretch <laughs> artist that stretches me out. You know, I, I work out most mornings at 5am. And, and so I'm I'm kind of doing it all I'm trying to be as productive as humanly possible. To me, that's the highest value that we can have as human beings. You are here for a very short time. Be productive. Be productive. Be productive. That's what you want to be. And I, I strive to be productive.
1: Oh, my gosh, you're putting the vast majority of us to total shame And at the same time, a huge inspiration. I'd like to hear, you're working with these leaders, and I think a lot of folks um, may think, well, the leader's not doing it. They don't get it. So therefore, I'm a bit, uh, you know, like, what am I going to do? And this is part of the, the genesis of the whole Say It Skillfully show. It's like, sure, we would love the leaders to be doing the right thing, to create the space so that people can belong, that people can speak up and say what needs to be said. But- you know, sometimes that's just not there yet. And I want folks to empower themselves to say, hey, you have a voice and you can see things. And unless you're really in a place where people really don't want to lead well and really are trying to squash people, you know, assume that, you know, that people want to do the right thing. So I guess I'd love to hear thoughts from you, Cordell, when you see people who may maybe haven't empowered themselves yet, you know, to kind of play as big as they can um, thoughts you have for them,
3: yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it, it often comes up in these discussions. And leaders feel like they have to do everything to get people to the place where they feel safe. And I just don't think that's that's fair or or correct. Like we have to assume good intent. You have to, if your organization says we want to be a place of belonging, you have to test that, okay? because you you have a fallback, legally speaking, you said that all opinions are welcome. I gave my opinion, and you punish me. Well, now you've just set up a situation where you now have liability, All right. I have a, a good faith claim uh, for retaliation, and so you're very safe as a uh, as an employee to 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 step out in faith a bit, but you have to meet your leaders halfway. After all, you are being paid to be there. Everyone's being paid to be there, so you should do something. But just sitting back and just saying, well, I don't see it yet. I don't feel safe and blah, blah, blah. No, you have to do something too. And so I think that's the second part of the belonging message that doesn't get articulated well enough, that there is an expectation that you will assume that you belong, number one, and then act as such. Now, if you have received evidence that you don't belong, that's a different issue. That's a legitimate issue, but as long as they're saying you belong, and you're trying to show like, hey, okay, I'm gonna say something, say it. All right. All right. Don't hold that against them. They said it's a safe place, everyone. That's the right response.
1: I am just so nodding my head. Um, That notion of assume that you belong there, play like you do. And oh, shockingly, then people treat you that way. You know, I, I, I love that notion. When you have seen, I mean, just talk to me, some of the folks, maybe folks who haven't gotten it. I mean, I am I am curious when you perhaps see people who are dug in and just not able to see their blind spots. How do you handle that?
3: Yeah, you know, I run into this a lot, especially middle-aged white men. They they have a reflexively negative response to anything D, E, and I, which is why I don't use those words at all. I don't come in saying diversity, equity, inclusion. It is self-evident. The the last high school graduating class that is majority white in this country is 2025. The demographic glyph is here. The workforce is diverse. So we can drop the D, right? Now the equity and inclusion part is more challenging. But I I want you to put yourself in in, in their shoes. You were, uh, say, a 55-year-old white gentleman. You were raised a certain way. You're in leadership. Um, Everywhere you look, no one looks like you. Um, you're getting a lot of pressure to ensure that you are giving all candidates a fair shot Um, and your mental framework, you think people who look and act like you are the best people for the job because that's all that you know. We have to create space for people to say that out loud. We just do. You know why that's important? Because 90 plus percent of all executive roles, regardless of industry in this country, are held by white men. And so essentially we've created a paradigm in which we are telling white men, white leaders, uh, that you have to create a uh, an environment for people who don't look like you. And by the way, you mm-hmm. aren't welcome in this new environment. Like what human you know um, would accept that? Of course, there's resistance. Of course, they're not going to champion. I wouldn't either with that paradigm. We have to change the language completely. And so, you know, some of the work I do with the Federal Executive Institute um, once, a, once a month, I'm talking to them, um, you know, about what belonging looks like, what it is, what it isn't. Uh, moreover, I'm I'm showing that we are evolving as a nation, and all entities evolve in human in humanity. That's just the nature of being a human. You get better, you get different. Um, you're going to get more diverse. It's just it is what it is. That's how bioorganisms work. And so um, I can usually sense the reticence, um, which is why I try to appeal to a person's intellect. Um, that's my my choice of using founding documents are very important. Um, and this on purpose is intentional, because I want us to start in a place that you think you know. But if I start off and say, hey, we're doing an equity audit and you're failing, you don't even know what I'm talking about. So you're reflexively defensive. And so I I, I say this a lot to DNI practitioners, of which I am not. Um, I want you to consider your audience better and, and look at the landscape. Who's in leadership? And would this work if the you, shoe you were on the foot? Or, I mean, are, do you have your empathy hat on or just your justice hat? Okay, because they have to coexist, my friend. Um, and I don't think people get that. And this is why we are where we are. We've been talking about DEI since 1964. And I, I can't say that we've made a, a tremendous amount of progress in that regard, even though the demographics of the country, college attrition, and uh, I'm sorry, college uh, education has changed quite a bit. You have a lot more people of color and women. Are now the majority of students in the universities, but they don't make up the majority in leadership. Something is stopping that from happening. Some there is some resistance that we're not seeing, and until we diagnose that issue, where that's coming from, we'll never get the progress that we think we deserve.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's it is a um, you know it, it's a million dollar question. There is no silver bullet. I I love how you are encouraging all sides to own to own their fair share on it. And I think for folks who may potentially inadvertently come across as this, this is being done to me, I'm being squashed. You know, I think that ability for people to be able to be articulate about their experience, right? And, and to say for, you know, middle-aged white folks, what is their experience and to just not judge it, but let's just understand where everybody is at To your to your point. You, you, cause you can't really approach someone and communicate. You don't really understand like, where are they coming from? And, yeah, yeah, you know, there's exactly. so much, yeah, it's just. Uh,
3: and then I have to say just one more thing on that point. It's like, uh, there is a resistance now to, to just talk plainly and comprehensively about American history as if bad facts are going to somehow harm us psychologically. Um, and I, I just, I, I don't understand that sentiment at all. I don't see how that solves any problems. I mean, if you tell a child not to do something, that's the first thing they want to do. That's just how humans behave. And so by telling someone, hey, don't don't go there or don't touch this um, because, you know, you're going to make me feel bad. I'm like, you know, now I want to go as deep as possible in that. So I I don't understand where that goes politically or or socially. That's number one. Number two, um, how does anyone benefit from half the facts? Like we can plainly see with our own eyes disparities Uh, that that's, that's, you know, observable reality. Um, And so I I just I don't know where that that comes from. And when I see that, that is different from saying I don't have voice that is saying I don't want to hear your voice. That's the opposite of of what organizations are designed to do. And frankly, I have no tolerance for that behavior. Um, Just shutting down facts because you don't like them. Um, so like, look, we'll go and, and behave well, I engage in your ostrich-like behavior somewhere else, but you're not welcome here because here we're trying to move the ball down the field. Um, but expressing feelings of loss, I, we have to create space for that. And I think that's at the root of it, a uh, grave concern, um, for loss. But I, I like to do the following as a mental exercise. I'm like, well, I believe that you earn everything on merit. Correct? Yes. Okay, and certainly racism isn't the problem for you or you you haven't been aided by it, though that's true. Then what's the concern about demographic shift if they do to you what others what you do to them? Well, uh then you start getting the question. So like you you got to turn it back on people too and force them to contend with their own nonsense um in a gentle way, obviously, um, but I like to this is why I, I find great comfort. And, and speeches and documents of others, because this isn't Cordell talking, I merely asked a question, I point out some of the the um, similarities with our current debate. Um, but I, I, I had I can't let that go without acknowledging that there are forces out there that just refuse they have their heads in the sand. And they're like, Yo, you're know, you not going to talk about it. Talk about what do you mean I'm not going to talk about it? it's American history. Nope, I'm not gonna talk about it. Yeah, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I think that um, the black and white and colors, you know, no no puns intended here. Just I think that ability to come in part way and really genuinely be curious to not be judging of what others say. I just would encourage folks, you know, it can be easy to be very like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know. And and I get it. But I think if everyone can, you know, come in a little bit, Um, there is a lot of fear. There's insecurity for people, for people who aren't used to being fearful, who don't, who shouldn't come across insecure and to have compassion for folks in that, I think is a real opportunity. And, you know, this is an area I'm just uh, so grateful, Cordell, for your, your passion, your forthrightness on this. Uh, We could talk for a long time. So let me just wrap with one question. And that is, um, you've said a lot, You've had to go down memory lane. What was it like for you to share your journey today?
3: Well, it was a bit cathartic. I said some things I didn't expect to say out loud. So I appreciate you for the prompt. Obviously, um, my body has been wanting to get it out. Um, it was, it's been really wonderful to, to cast my head back and remember, remember when, Um, as I I like to say, we're on this place for a brief period of time and and it all matters. Everything that we experience, it matters. And it just makes me more grateful for this current moment. It makes me more grateful uh, to have an amazing child and and spouse. Um, I'm just grateful for my life. I I have, I have no complaints, um, none whatsoever. And I wish uh, the same for everyone. I want them to experience everything that i am experienced, the joy of autonomy and being creative and making things happen, um, never losing the hustler mentality as you as you grow. Um, that's what I'm grateful for.
1: I am grateful to you. What a gift to listen to your journey. I just have so many thoughts. You are changing the game for those being underestimated, expanding opportunities for us all. I'm just cheering for you. Big, big, big time, Cordell. Thank you. Being part of the solution, and just you know, you you are inspiring the belongingness that is going to help all of us be seen and heard and understood and our true and very best selves. Uh, we will cross paths soon. You take good care, my friend. You too. Ah, folks, I am just blown away. Okay, so uh, my thought for the week, and I have two, uh, courtesy of Cordell. One is something he talks to his daughter about, and that is practice makes you better. And the second is, the best revenge is living well. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Cordell's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
2: Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding. But it's clear, more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built4zero.org see if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real-time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter.